Good morning, church. We can uh, grab a Bible and turn that, turn those pages open to uh, chapter 21 of Luke. We're going to be in 21 of Luke, verses 5 through 36 today. 5 through 36 is what we're going to be covering today. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that the amount of ground that we're covering today is not normal. We usually do two to four verses at a time, whatever, whatever unit of uh, text that God gives us. And today, um, on Father's Day, the Father has given us a peek into the end of the world as we know it. Uh, the Father has a plan uh, for this whole thing called history. And today, we're going to hear from the lips of Jesus the Christ himself uh, what that plan entails and the section of scripture that we're in is a uh, section that is prophetic, meaning not only is it the, the word of God, but it's also speaking about future events that um, in the immediate context hadn't happened yet. And even though now in our day, one of the things that we're going to be discussing has already occurred, there is still much that Jesus, um, as a prophet, um, says that is awaiting future fulfillment. And so prophecy is a major theme of scripture. I think this will just be a, a note of interest for you, that prophecy occupies approximately one-fifth of the entire Bible. And of that one-fifth, the second coming of Christ, which is one of the major themes, if not the major theme today, occupies one-third of that one-fifth. There are 1,527 Old Testament passages referring to the second coming of Christ. And in the New Testament, there is a total of 7,959 verses in total, but 330 of those approximately one out of every 25, refer directly to the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is the second most dominant topic in the entire New Testament, second only to the subject of faith. And for every time that the Bible mentions the first coming of Christ, it mentions the second coming eight times. The Lord himself refers to his return 21 times, and more than 50 times in the entirety of the New Testament are men exhorted to be ready for the coming of our Lord. So with that in our mind, let's take a look at the passage itself. We're going to read verses 5 through 36 of Luke chapter 21. Here we go. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. And they questioned him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see to it that you are not misled for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. And then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to be prepared beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which absolutely none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents, and brothers, and relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are days of vengeance, 
so that all which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations. In perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the leaves and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Quite a lengthy portion of scripture, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself makes it absolutely clear that there will be a return, a second coming of Christ and that when he returns, he will return in judgment. Therefore, the title of today's sermon is called The Kingdom of God Will Come in Judgment. So where do we find ourselves in the book of Luke? As, as you know, we've been walking through this book for three and a half years, and we're getting closer and closer to the end. But where do we find ourselves today? Well, we find ourselves in the Passion Week. It is the week leading up to Christ's uh, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And we specifically find ourselves on Wednesday night here. Uh, Wednesday night, Jesus has just left the temple after giving a scathing rebuke to the Pharisees, who are the religious elite of the apostate Jewish religion. And he's leaving the temple now. And he's on his way to the Mount of Olives. And we know this for certain because Matthew chapter 24 tells us this. And so he's leaving the temple and his disciples make a comment. Look at all these amazing things. And we're going to get into just how grand the temple was. But by any standard across all time, the temple was a magnificent structure. And his disciples are taken back. They're just in awe. And Jesus, who's made it his point to unmask the utter lack of any ability for the apostate religion of, of his day to save now turns his attention to the very pinnacle of that religion, the temple. And he says, you see all these things? They're all coming down. They're all coming down. And so we're 24 hours away from the last supper in the upper room where Jesus and his disciples would share the final Passover. We're roughly 30 hours away from the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot early on Friday morning. We are very close to the very reason why Jesus himself came. And so when Jesus begins to teach his disciples these things, uh, when he begins to say that all of these things that you're looking at are going to come down, they must be astounded to a degree because they think that Messiah has come. As Jews, their eschatology didn't tell them about a first and second coming. It told them about one coming. And they think Messiah's here. He's going to come, establish his reign and rule. This age is being done away with. Messiah is going to establish his reign and rule. We are going to rule with him. And in comes the eternal state and the age to come. But as we will see, Jesus completely reconfigures their eschatological assumptions and eschatology is what we are going to be looking at today. Eschatology meaning the study of last things. We are specifically going to be looking at the destruction of Jerusalem, 
which did actually happen in history, and we'll get to that. Uh, we're going to be looking at the destruction of the world, the globe, which obviously has not happened yet. And we will be looking at specifically the second coming of Christ and what it means for his people, both Jew and Gentile. And so today is a prophetic utterance of judgment, coming judgment, specifically to the Jews of his day, those who trusted in the righteousness that came by works of the law and not by the righteousness that came only by faith in the Messiah. And then specifically to all of us sitting here in this room and alive during this time period, the same thing. If we do not have our faith placed in the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished, we can expect the very things that are described by Jesus in this text to fall upon us. And so with that being said, let's take a look at the division of the text today. The division should be up on the screen for you, but there's three basic parts. The claim, which is in verses five through six. The question, which is in verse seven. And the answer, which makes up verses eight through 36. And you can see all of the subpoints underneath those three headings. So let's get our eyes on the text. We're gonna be in the Bible a whole lot today. We're gonna to be going back and forth between the Old Testament and New. So you might want to uh, keep your finger on the table of contents if you don't know where some of the minor prophet books are, but we are gonna be taking a look at the Old Testament a lot today. And so verses five through six, again, some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. And Jesus says, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Again, Jesus is unmasking the apostate religion of his day. He's focusing now on the pinnacle of that apostate religion, the temple. The glory of God left the temple. You can read that for yourselves in Ezekiel. This temple is no longer filled with the glory of God. It is apostate, and it is the pinnacle of the apostate Jewish religion. But nonetheless, it is a magnificent, let me, I'm going to read in just a second. It is a magnificent structure. And his disciples make a comment, teacher, look at all this beauty. Look at all this magnificence. His disciples were commoners from the countryside. I mean, the only time they saw this temple was the few times throughout the year where they had to go and, you know, go to the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, etc., and do their um, religious ceremonies. But this temple, make no mistake about it, was a magnificent temple. It was currently being renovated by Herod the Great. And you, you will remember that Herod is the king who's alive during this time. And, and, and let me be very clear. Herod was not renovating this temple because he loved God. Herod was renovating this temple because he loved himself. And he wanted himself to be magnified and glorified. And he began these renovations on the second temple during the time of Nehemiah uh, in, verses, or in, in year 19 and 20 BC. And that renovation continued all the way until the eventual destruction, all the way in 70 AD. That's a very long time. But like I mentioned, Herod had, his, had himself in mind while doing this. Make no mistake about it. Herod was ruthless. Herod was cunning. He was narcissistic. And he was absolutely brutal. In chapter two of the book of Matthew, specifically in the 16th verse, you will remember that upon hearing that the Messiah had been born, Herod now orders that all children in Bethlehem under the age of two be slaughtered. Herod was very likely being used by Satan to take out the Messiah. Herod was obsessed with himself and he was obsessed with showing how great he was in these grandiose building projects, the most grand being the renovation of the temple. Now, just a couple of areas uh, that I think you will find interesting about the expansion under Herod. The temple occupied approximately one-sixth of Jerusalem's entire area. It was massive. The foundation was expanded to encompass approximately 1.5 million square feet. My house is 1,700 square feet. <laughs> I'm just saying. The foundational walls were constructed using gigantic stones that were literally covered in gold. And as, as the text here says, votive offerings. Now, votive offerings were uh, uh, gifts made from vows by pilgrims to God. An example of this is found in uh, verse 
4, where it says that the poor widow put in all that she had into the offering bucket. I mean, and the rich would come and they would dump money in there. And these votive offerings, these gifts made from vows being made to God by pilgrims adorned these stones. It was beautiful. All these stones were handcrafted to fit together perfectly. And the largest of these stones measured 45 feet long, 11 and a half feet tall, and 12 foot thick. These were massive. These were massive. These were absolutely amazing. And Herod himself had even made a votive gift of sorts. He had donated a golden vine with clusters of golden grapes that were nearly six feet tall. It's a lot of gold. The temple buildings themselves were made of gorgeous white marble. And on the eastern wall of the main large structure, that eastern wall was literally covered with gold plates so that when the sun rose, the sun would hit that wall and refract the glory of the sun all over the place. It was a beautiful, beautiful, magnificent structure by any standard. But Christ says it's all coming down. God will not be mocked and he will not have a pagan king build his temple. So looking at verse six, Jesus says, as for these things which you're looking at, the days will come. Okay, this is how we know it is a prophetic utterance. It hasn't happened yet. He is prophesying about future events, okay? It's not just the word of God. It is specifically the word of God about the future here, okay? The temple and all of its grandeur, it's going down. And he's hearkening back to something. If you turn one page back in the book of Luke to Luke chapter 19, specifically verses 41 through 44, when Jesus is riding on a, the, the fowl of a donkey coming up to Jerusalem for his triumphal entry. And he says specifically to Jerusalem, for the days will come upon you, in verse 43, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus is saying something that he's already said once before. And his disciples aren't blown away by this statement because they've already heard him say that. And, and just, so you are, uh, just so you have a little bit of an understanding of how the disciples may have been thinking about the Messiah, the end times and all this, it's interesting to, to understand that <clears throat> Jewish literature during this time period called the intertestamental time period, uh, began to develop what the Old Testament clearly said about eschatology. Of course, these developments were really their own fictions about what was gonna happen. And they, these writings were called the apocalypsis, meaning unveilings. Some of you coming from a Catholic background may recognize the apocrypha, uh, where some of these writings are still actually in the apocrypha. Uh, but, but an outline of these Jewish unveilings has been put together by scholars, specifically a man named Emil Schur in his four-volume set titled A History of the Jewish People in the Age of Jesus Christ. And here's the basic outline, okay? This is what the disciples would have been thinking. This is what the, the Jewish nation at large would have been thinking about the arrival of Messiah. Number one, before Messiah came, there would be a time of great tribulation. Before the Messiah came, things would get really, really bad, great tribulation. Number two, a forerunner would come and declare that Messiah is coming. And we know this was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Number three, then Messiah would come. He would bring righteousness on earth and he would vindicate God's people from their oppression. Number four, the nations themselves would gather around Jerusalem to fight against the Messiah. And the battle of the nations against the, uh, the battle of Messiah against the nations of the world would result in Messiah reigning victorious. And thus he would establish his reign and rule and usher in the messianic age to come. This is what the disciples thought. This is what they thought was going to happen. And, and we have studied Luke for, like I said, three and a half years. So we know the messianic expectations were boiling over. I mean, they're ready. If you just look at, again, chapter 19, Look at chapter 19, verse 11. This is uh, one verse that we'll look at, but this just sums it up, right? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It says that the crowds were listening to, to uh, all of the things he was saying because he was near Jerusalem. And look at this. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. It's imminent. 
You go to the end of chapter 19. Look at verse 48. The people were hanging on his every word. They thought, he's here. Here we go. Let's get ready. And the disciples thought the same thing. In fact, the disciples thought, all right, we're about to reign. We're about to reign with our Messiah, right? Remember James and John had their mom go ask uh, Jesus, please, Jesus, make, make, make my son to sit on your right and your left hand in your kingdom, right? Okay, so, so now we understand. This is in the mindset of the Jews. They're ready for this. Now let's look at verse 7 of chapter 21. They said, teacher, when therefore will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming? Of, or, or what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? It's a good question. Well, what's going to happen or when's gonna, when is this going to happen and what's going to be the sign so we can get ready, right? It's a good question. They're ready. They're like, all right, sweet. The disciples' eschatology, in other words, and what Jesus has said thus far are still lining up, but he's about to change all of that. We're going to look now at the answer that Jesus gives to the disciples' two-sided question, and we're going to look specifically at verses eight and nine. Jesus says, see to it that you are not misled for many will come in my name saying that I am he and the time is near, but do not go after them. Many will come in my name, Jesus says. And they're going, wait, hold, I, thought, I thought you're the Messiah. I thought this was about to happen. And he says, don't be deceived. Many will come. This implies a long time period. And what will these false messiahs say? They will say, I am he, and that the time is near. Now that phrase, the time is near, is very crucial to our understanding of the dualistic application of what the one meaning is of what Jesus is saying here, okay? There is a eminent application. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And there is a future application. The world will be judged in righteousness by God. And so the time is near to a Jew means the time for restoration, the kingdom, everything I've just told you. And that's a very, very important statement. And Jesus says, when you hear that, do not go after them. Do not believe them. Verse nine, he says, when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. To a Jew who thinks the end is going to follow immediately, this just completely would wreck their eschatology. They go, what? What are you saying, Jesus? You're supposed to establish your reign and rule right now, and we're ready for it. Come on. Look at verse 10. The fact that Luke added this little phrase in here, then he continued by saying to them, reveals to us that he took a pause. He let his disciples breathe for a second. And they're going, what? What? And now, because they had nothing in their minds of a first and second coming of Messiah, now Jesus begins to reconfigure their eschatological assumptions. He begins to teach them about what will happen in the end. Now, what I want to do before we dive into the text here is look at a portion of scripture in Luke chapter four, verse 16 through 21, that proves exactly what I'm saying to you to be the case. The, the Jews had no idea about a first and second coming of Messiah. This was something that uh, in the Greek, there's a word called mysterion. It is a, a truth that has been hidden in the Old Testament, that, but that is revealed in the gospel. This is a mysterion. And now Luke chapter four, verses 16 through 21, it should be up on the screen, but if you want to turn to it, it's not that far away. It says this, and Jesus came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And what, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, have you ever wondered why the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus? That's because Jesus stopped halfway through the sentence. Look on the screen at Isaiah 61 verses one through two, and you'll see what I mean. This is the portion of scripture that, Isaiah is re- or that Jesus is reading out of Isaiah. It says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And here, here it is, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So when Jesus reads that portion of scripture in the synagogue, he stops halfway through verse two, rolls the scroll up, gives it back to the attendant and sits down and says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Jews are like, what are you talking about? What about the end of the day of the vengeance of our God? Where is our vindication, Lord? Where is your vengeance upon all the nations? But as we, as Christians know, praise God for his mercy, that there was a first advent of Christ in which he accomplished the deliverance for all who would believe from sin. So at this point in the Olivet Discourse, which is the title of what uh, this portion of scripture is that we're looking at today, at this point, his disciples' jaws must have dropped and they're beginning to rethink some stuff, especially because he says at the end of verse nine, like I read, the end does not follow immediately. So to sum up what we've said so far, Jesus is reconfiguring his disciples' messianic expectations. He's setting them straight. He's he's teaching them. And what he's going to teach them in this discourse is that number one, there will be a cleansing of Jerusalem via utter destruction. That is the days of vengeance in verse 22. Number two, Jerusalem will be occupied by Gentiles until, as verse 24 says, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then number three, Jesus teaches on the second coming of Messiah, which will precede the ultimate restoration that the Jews so desperately desire. Looking at verses 10 now, well, let's get into the rest of Jesus' answer. He gets into the personal application of the signs that will precede these things. Specifically, in verse 12, rather, he he says this, but before all these things, all what things? All the things that he just said in verses 8 through 11. But before all of these things, they will lay their hands on you. Now, they is defined in verses 16 and 17, which we will get to in a second. But he says, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons and bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. But it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom that none, in the Greek it means absolutely none, of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. I'll stop right there. None, absolutely none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute the word of God. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we would do well to use it and to remember that. But Jesus is not saying something new here. In Luke 12, specifically through uh, verses 52 through 53, he says the same exact thing. Look on the screen. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, no. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus did not come to unite the world. Jesus came to divide the world. The division is between those who believe and those who do not believe. And this portion of scripture that we're reading today should serve as a loud and clear warning sign that if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the things that are written will be fulfilled and this judgment will fall on you. But if you do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
you have nothing to fear. For the Lord has not destined us to wrath, but to mercy. Looking at verses 13 through 15. Why will these things happen this way? Why will there be discord and, and, and betrayal in the family unit and amongst the closest relatives and, and amongst the most intimate relationships? Why? It will lead, Jesus says, as an opportunity for you to serve as a witness. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, he says, and he goes on. Now that word witness is very important. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus says the same thing after he's ascended to his disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Greek word for witness is maturion, which in a very general sense means simply someone who gives evidence for, but in a very specific sense, and his disciples knew the very specific sense. It means someone who will die for their faith. It's the word where we get the English word martyr. Marturion is the Greek word. So Jesus is very explicitly telling them that they will die for their faith. Now, this is a specific application to his disciples. If you understand and know the history of the church, you know that all 12 of these men were persecuted unto death. You know this. This is not, however, a normative application or prescription for all believers throughout all time. But what is normative is that we and all believers throughout all time should be willing to go to death as our Lord and Savior did for us. We should be willing to go to death. And now Jesus encourages his disciples here he says, I will be with you in your time of need. He says, verse 15, I will give you utterance and wisdom, which absolutely nobody will be able to resist and refute. My words will be in your mouth and you will give testimony to what I have done. Jesus says in the, the preceding verses, verses 16 through 18, as he be, continues to move on about how the age of betrayal, let's call it, will happen. He says this, yet not a hair on your head will perish. Despite the fact that you'll be hated by everybody for my name's sake, I will be with you and not a hair on your head will perish. Perish in the Greek means you will not be annihilated. You may lose your life here. You may lose your life here. You may lose your stuff here. But where you are going, believer, you will live eternally. He says in verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your what? Your lives. You will have eternal life. <laughs> what is this world? What is this world? This world is temporary. This world and all the things that it offers you, they're passing away. Believer, don't try to hold on to the things of this world. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how big your house is. It doesn't matter how many cars you have. It doesn't matter how many kids you have. It doesn't matter where they go to school. None of that stuff matters when you understand the plan that the father has and that he has created from before the foundation of the world. What does matter is, will you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ during our time of trial and temptation. Look, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, where are the Jesus followers? He's right over there. He's been there for two weeks. You got to understand, when Jesus says in verse 17 of our section here, you will be hated by all because of my name, this is the second time that Luke has used this word. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 14. This is very important. This is extremely important for us to understand as believers. Because look, just because we live in America does not mean, does not mean that that knocking will not come on our door someday. We are living in a time of absolutely unparalleled ease and blessing in this country. But as many of you are, I'm sure, aware, that is eroding quickly. And God will not be mocked. 
The judgment will fall. But we as believers, we have a strong assurance, an unshakable faith. But that knock, it will come. And who will betray us? According to the word of God, the one that you least think will, the one who is most intimate with you, your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your friend. I love you, bro. It's ride or die. Yeah, it's ride and you're going to die. That's what it is. Look at chapter 14 of Luke, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You go, what? How could Jesus tell me to hate my father? He's not. That word in the Greek is meseo. It means to detest in a comparative sense. It's you, it's not me. You're going to death. I'm not. That's the sense here. It means to love less. That's what it means. You must love Jesus the Christ more than any other relationship, including the one to yourself. You must love him more than all other relationships or else you cannot be his disciple. There's no such thing as easy believism and easy grace. It's not just you pray a prayer once and you can do whatever you want. It's not. And it's also not you work really hard to be accepted in God's sight. It's what Jesus has done that will get you into the kingdom of heaven. And it's a life devoted to him that will exemplify that faith. And we must understand, church, that those who do not love God will not think twice when that door comes, when that knock on the door comes. They will not even think twice if it's their head or yours because you follow Jesus and they don't, you're gone. You're gone. This is the word of God, but I want to encourage you, like Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will gain their lives. And you don't have to endure it alone, nor do I. We have the spirit of God that dwells within us. We have God Almighty giving us words that absolutely nobody will be able to refute. We simply must be faithful until the end and we will gain eternal life. And with that statement in verse 19, he finishes his, his personal application of these things that he is discussing. And now he moves on. In verses 20 through 24, he moves on to the national application of the signs preceding these things, the national application of the signs preceding these things. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. Okay. Again, this harkens back to what Jesus said about Jerusalem's destruction in Luke 19. This actually happened. This has already occurred in history. Okay, like I mentioned when I preached on this, the Romans began their war against the Jews in what is known as the Jewish Wars. That, that occurred from AD 64 to AD 70 in the culmination of the flattening of Jerusalem. The Romans led by Roman Emperor Titus, the son of Aspesian, carried out the words that Jesus himself says will happen. So his disciples saw this, but why would this happen? His disciples surely said, Messiah, I thought you were here to restore Jerusalem, not to allow its destruction. Well, look at verse 22. Because these are days of vengeance so that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Jesus says in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So what are the days of vengeance? Well, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Turn there in your Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 28. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 28. We're going to just walk through verses 15 uh, through 63. And I'm just going to show you sort of, you know, rapid fire some of these things. But this is uh, in contrast to the portion of Deuteronomy known as the, the blessings for obedience, which proceeds directly before this section, which is the cursings for disobedience. These are the days 
of vengeance spelled out for us with exact precision. Now, all of these things that we're going to read now have already happened in Jerusalem's history when the first temple was destroyed by the Assyrians and Babylonians. It's going to happen again, as Jesus has told his people, in the Roman invasion and destruction. And then there will be a third time in which these things written will happen to the Jewish nation and their temple in the future when there's a third temple reconstructed and it is going to be flattened. But Deuteronomy chapter 28, starting at verse 15, these are the cursings for disobedience which characterize the days of vengeance. And it says this, I'll just read verse, you know, a couple of verses here. Verse 15, verse 15 says that it shall come about if you do not obey Yahweh your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And from verse 16 all the way through verse 49, he begins to lay it out. And you guys can take a look at those as I'm speaking here. But every single one of these has happened and they like cycles, continue to happen as his people continue to forsake the Lord. Like it says in verse 20 here, the Lord will send upon you curses because you have forsaken me. As long as the Jews do not accept Jesus Christ, and by extension, as long as all people do not accept Jesus Christ, what we can expect for those who do not accept the Lord Jesus Christ is eventual destruction. But now in verse 49, this is where it gets extremely specific. And Yahweh will bring a nation against you from afar and from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Scrolling down to verse 53, after this nation, which the God will use to besiege the towns and, and, and land, then it says, then you shall eat the offspring of your own body. This is cannibalism. You can find this in Lamentations. This actually happened. This is the word of God. The flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom Yahweh your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. Verse 55, the man, this man will not even give one of his children any of the remaining flesh of his children, which he will eat since he has nothing else left during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in your towns. Things get so desperate during these, during these invasions, during this besieging, that people will hold on to the last resources they have, even if it's their own children. This, this actually happened. I'm not making this up. This is the word of God. Understand, church, you do not want to experience the wrath of God. And if you are in Christ, if you are saved, you will not. You will not. It wouldn't be good news if you would. But if you are not saved, you can expect this without a doubt. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not. Turn back to Luke now. You can do further study on that portion of scripture. I need to keep moving. Looking at verse 24, Jesus describes how the besieging of Rome or by Rome of Jerusalem will occur. And he says, it will occur until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, this is a unique term to Luke, but essentially all that it means is that Jerusalem will continually be occupied by Gentiles until what happens in verse 25, which we'll get to, happens. Okay, so Assyrians invaded uh, Jerusalem in uh, 722 BC, along with the Babylonians, that lasted until 539 BC. Then you had the Medo-Persian occupation from 539 BC to 332 BC. Then you had Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire from 332 BC to 167 BC. The Jews revolted and tried to take Jerusalem back by force. This is known as the Maccabean Revolution. This happened during the 400 years between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. And then came the Roman occupation in 63 BC. The Roman occupation was what was current during Jesus' day. And today, in 2022, you see the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. That is a sign not of Jewish worship, a sign of Islamic worship. 
Every single thing that the Lord has decreed in this passage has happened with exact precision. We must understand this. We must understand the significance of this and the urgency that this creates for us as the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. So summing up this entire section so far, by answering the disciples' two-sided question concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the subsequent restoration of the kingdom, Christ has, in this portion of scripture, completely reconfigured his disciples' understanding of the end times. He's told them about the potentially long period of time that will last between his death and his second coming. He's informed them of the absolutely terrible and miraculous signs that will precede the destruction of Jerusalem. And now it's back to those signs that he shifts his focus. He leaves the national application and moves on to the global application in verses 25 and following, verses 25 through 23. Now, before I get into this, I have to just give you a crash course in eschatology. I have to just even have a conversation about this. And so I understand that many of you in this room may not have ever studied eschatology. That's okay. We will, as a church, continue to teach you about the end times. But just so you know where this church stands, we hold to the view of future premillennialism, which simply means that there will be a future fulfillment of Christ's literal bodily second coming to earth and a future fulfillment of Christ's literal 1,000-year reign in Jerusalem over the entire earth. This is future pre-millennialism. Now, we believe this because it's the most faithful view of eschatology towards the scriptures. And it's based on three main things. Number one, that prophecy which is what we're reading, should be viewed through the same lens of interpretation as the rest of Scripture. You don't get to change how you interpret Scripture just because it's prophecy. We, we use, and we believe that the most faithful uh, hermeneutic or lens of interpretation is the grammatical historical method. That just means you would read the Bible like you read any other book. If you're reading a, a poet or a, a poem, for instance, you don't uh, think that these things are literal necessarily. You literally think that what you're reading in poetry is symbolic, right? Okay, so the way that we interpret scripture is how we would interpret any other book. We have to understand the author. We have to understand the audience. We have to understand the genre, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So prophecy doesn't get to have a new hermeneutic lens. That's the first of the three main beliefs uh, of pr future premillennialism. Number two, we believe that the scripture maintains a clear distinction between Israel, the people of God, the ethnic people of God, and the church. The church has not replaced Israel. We don't, we don't believe that the Bible teaches replacement theology. We believe that the, the Bible is explicitly clear that there is a program of salvation and redemption for ethnic Israel and a program of salvation and redemption for the church. And the third main belief is that the seven-year great tribulational period will occur before the second coming and return of Christ, okay? So on the board here in a second, I'm gonna show you the flow of events that are next on God's time calendar for the earth. The first is that this current church age, which we exist in now, will remain on earth until the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Now, I, I understand believe me, that there are many views on whether or not there's actually a rapture. And um, we will be teaching on that very soon. But for conversation's sake now, we believe that the church age will occur until a pre-tribulational rapture. You can write down some scriptures if you want to do further study. Uh, look at specifically Revela the whole book of Revelation, but specifically Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, Jesus is speaking to one of the faithful churches. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you from the hour of trial. In Revelation, that's the great tribulation. Uh, you can also write down John 14, verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 52. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, and also chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And believe me, there's a whole lot more. But for time's sake, we have to move. 
The church age will last until the tribulation, a pre-tribulational rapture. Then comes the seven-year, literal seven years of great tribulation on the earth, which is characterized by increasing chaos in society and the rise of the Antichrist. The Antichrist will proclaim himself as God to be worshiped as God three and a half years into this seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. Uh, Things get very, very bad from that point forward, but then the return of Christ occurs and the establishment of his millennial kingdom literally here on earth will happen. Um, Some of the uh, scriptures that you can look at for the uh, seven-year Great Tribulational time on earth in the career of Antichrist, you can look at Revelation chapters 16 through 18. Uh, The day of the Lord event, which is not a 24-hour day, it's a three and a half year period, that will begin when Antichrist sets himself up as God to be worshiped as God. God will not be mocked and he will share his glory with no other. When a man will stand up and proclaim himself to be worshiped as God, that's when God will show his true colors. That's when the day of the Lord event will occur. And it's to this that I want to turn your attention. Turn to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, go to your table of contents real quick. Look up Zephaniah and turn there so that we can understand the day of the Lord event. And this is one of hundreds of scriptures that we could read, but I think that this one will do it the best, uh, will do it the most justice. Remember, we're, we're, we're talking about the day of the Lord event. And the book of Zephaniah, chapter one, verses two through 18, describe this for us. Starting at verse two, this is the Lord speaking. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. Global judgment. That is global judgment. Verse three, I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. And so I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to Yahweh and yet also swear by Milcom. And those who turn back from following Yahweh and those who have not sought Yahweh nor inquired of him, be silent before the Lord God. For the day of Yahweh is near. For Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sounds of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter of Jerusalem and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off and it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent and stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, Yahweh will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses, but they will not inhabit them and plant vineyards, but they will not drink their wine. Near is the great day of Yahweh, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of Yahweh. In it, the warrior creeps out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corners of towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. And on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fiery in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth if you are not in Christ this is what you can expect and i plead with you please please repent and trust in the lord jesus christ If you do not trust the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, this is what you can expect. But if you are in Christ, you have no need to worry. The church will not be on the earth during the day of the Lord event. 
The faithful remnant of the Jews will be the proclaimers of the gospel and God will protect his 144,000 to proclaim the gospel to Jew and Gentile. And these will be, as Revelation 7, the tribulation saints, the ones who believe during the end time. But if you believe now, you will not experience the day of God's wrath for God has not destined us for wrath. He has destined us for salvation. So that occurs halfway through the great tribulation period, then the return of Christ to which we will turn our attention now. Going back to Luke chapter 21, starting at verse 25. Jesus says, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. He will come back. Daniel 7 verses 13 through 14 tell us this. And this is the portion of scripture to which portion of scripture to which Jesus himself speaks of and alludes to. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The Antichrist and Satan and his kingdom will not be the kingdom that lasts forever. The son of man will come and he will come in power and in great glory. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn is what Matthew's account of this section tells us. All the tribes of the earth, that includes the Jews, those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Zechariah chapter 12, it tells us about the spirit of grace and supplication that the Lord God Almighty will pour out upon the apostate Jews and they will repent and they will repent and then they will be included in the kingdom and they will be the ones who proclaim the gospel. And this is what Jesus alludes to in our next verse in verse 28. He says this, but when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus is talking to Jews about Jewish things. These are discussions about the temple, about Judaism. We we shouldn't read the church into this, although it is applicable in some measure, but it's not applicable to the flow of events as described by Jesus. The redemption of the Jews is found in a lot of places in the Old Testament, but specifically turn to Zechariah chapter 8. Turn to Zechariah chapter eight. This is one of the most concise descriptions of this glorious day. And again, I told you in Zechariah 12, specifically in verse 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication so that when they look on me whom they've pierced, they will mourn for him. But in Zechariah eight, to which I want you to turn to now, this describes the day. This describes the promises that God has made to his people, the Jews. And I'm just going to scroll through this. In in verse 3, it discusses the literal return of the Lord and his establishment of his kingdom. And I want you to mark these for later study. In verses 7 through 8, chapter 8 of Zechariah, the Lord will deliver his people and bring them back to dwell safely in the land. This is not a spiritual thing. This is literal. When they, when they heard land, they, they said, oh, the land, the promised land. Yes. In verse 11, God will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days. He will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication on his people. He will no longer treat them the way that Deuteronomy 28 described. Verses 12 through 14 describe the blessing of redemption and vindication. He says, there will be peace for the seed, the seed of Abraham. The vine will yield its fruit, the vine, Israel. And the land, the promised land, will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due and I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all things. 
And verse 20 talks about how it will be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. In verse 22, it says, so many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek Yahweh of hosts in, in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of Yahweh. And in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. He will be faithful to his promises to his people. He has to be. He has to be faithful because that's who he is. Going back to Luke 21 now, we're gonna land this plane really quickly because I am out of time. Verses um, 31 and 32. So you also, when you see these things happen, happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Remember, many false prophets will come and say, the time is at hand. And Jesus said, don't believe them. Don't believe them. It will be unmistakable when I come back. You will see me coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Then you will know the kingdom of God is near. And he says in verse 32, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. There's been a lot of debate about the meaning of this, this phrase right here. Understand where Jesus was. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives looking at Jerusalem. He's just left Jerusalem after literally pronouncing seven curses on the religious elite of his day. And actually in Matthew 23, Jesus uses this same phrase about those religious elite. He says, truly, all these things will come upon this generation. So it is best to understand this generation in the dualistic sense that all of the rest of this should be understood in. This generation, meaning in 33 to 40 years from now, the destruction of Jerusalem will happen. And then this generation, metaphorically, what generation? Those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ and love their sin and wickedness. That will continue until the Lord returns. Wickedness will increase, not decrease. The Lord's, uh, the church's influence on the earth will not grow. It will decrease. We're in the post-Christian age. You have to understand this. We are called to faithfulness because we know that these things will happen. Verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. So what do we do with all this information? Jesus tells us, be on guard. Pay attention to yourself. Why? So that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation, with drunkenness, and with the worries of life. And that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. What, is the, what are these words, dissipation, drunkenness, and worries of life refer to? Dissipation refers to the excesses of life. In fact, it's translated in this particular section to drinking to the extent of vomiting. That's why drunkenness is said here. And it's just characteristics of the worries of this life. What are we, what are we concerned with? I gotta get more. I got to make more money. I got to get more houses. I got to get more cars. I got to do, 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 do. <laughs> Just let that stuff go, man. That stuff's going away. Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. Christian, are the thorns and thistles choking out the word of God that's within you? Are you paying more attention to building your own kingdom than his? Pay attention and that day will not come upon you suddenly. You will be ready. Verse 35, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Don't fall asleep. God will come back, boom, like that. And it'll be just like the days of Noah. People were eating and drinking and being married and being given in marriage, and boom, here comes the flood. Eight people lived from that event. The rest of the world was drowned. Verse 36, to land the plane. Jesus reiterates, but keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Believer, when you die, you will stand before Jesus and you will be rewarded if you have made your life about his kingdom and not, his, and not your own. If you have made your life about your own kingdom, you very well may not be saved or you may be severely backslidden. And we all, every single one of us, myself included, fall prey to that temptation. That's why Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. Pay attention. Where's your heart? Where's your treasure? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And if you are not a believer, you will also stand before the Lord God Almighty and you will be convicted. You are guilty of your sin. Your sin has not been paid for with sufficient means. You must repent by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you, Lord, for your grace. God, on this Father's Day, Lord, you have indeed given us a wonderful present, Lord. And Father, you have created a plan from before the foundation of the world. And all of history is moving rapidly towards the fulfillment of all of these things. The disciples had the question that we should all be asking. What are the signs? And when will this happen? And Jesus, you revealed to us the Father's plan. Things will grow worse, not better. There will be betrayal. These things will happen. But for those who are in you, Lord, we have a blessed assurance of hope that we have not been destined to wrath, but have been destined to obtain salvation. Therefore, let us be encouraged by this reality. Let us not fear, but with urgency, proclaim the gospel as we go along in our lives. Let us make disciples of those whom you have chosen for salvation, God. Let us be faithful to the commands of scripture so that when our court date arrives, when we die, we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We love you, Lord. Amen.